Well, tonight we return back to 2 Kings. We'll be looking at chapter 11 in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 11, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. As we turn there, I want you to do something for me, and that's in your mind, not necessarily out loud. But in your mind, name the most threatening time for the promise of God to David that he would have an heir on the throne forever. Think about perhaps the most threatening time in all of biblical history that that promise might fall. Sometimes the remnant, after all, seemed small. Even Amos the prophet in his book in chapter 7 cries out to God when God shows him judgment that he might give the nation of Israel. He says, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. Yet here... In this passage is the danger that God's forever king would not come. In fact, one commentator writes on this particular passage about the lady who saved Christmas. Here in chapter 11. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sir, and a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you, which come on duty and force on the Sabbath, and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king, shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath. With those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guard stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. So we consider this portion of God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, let this your word fall on joyful hearts. For you are a God who preserves his promise. Lord, we also pray that you would open our ears and hearts to hear and understand your word that we might apply it to our lives, we might see how you might cause us to grow as a result. And Father, I pray that anything not consistent with your word, whether our thoughts or our attitudes or my words, 
that you would let them pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might recognize this as a story type. Perhaps you've heard this in the annals of the kings of England or the kings in other places about a line and about preserving that line. It's in movies, it's in literature, it's in all kinds of stories and all kinds of things. One of my favorite renditions of this is the silly story of Danny Kaye in The Court Jester. There has been a usurper who has taken over the kingdom, and yet there is a baby that is still of the true line, and of course the court jester is hired amongst some others to help protect this baby king. It's a silly comedy, and yet at the same time, it's a storyline by which we can identify. There is someone who is wicked who has taken over the kingdom, and yet behind the scenes there is a true king out there who has been protected for the very purpose of bringing him forward just at the right time so that the kingdom can be preserved. Where do they get this kind of story? Well, they get it from chapter 11 in the Bible in 2 Kings. You see, the Davidic promise has been threatened it has been threatened first, of course, by the division of the kingdoms into Israel and Judah. And Israel, by this time, is no longer under the Davidic line. But now it is being threatened by the decimated Davidic line in Judah. Now, perhaps you understand this. I'm not even going to get to the rest of the outline at this point. You're number one here. This decimated Davidic line, you have to understand the context here. After all, the Davidic line has begun in this series of chapters with the good king, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king, and yet as one commentary writer, I think his name is Davis, has written, he says this guy is personally godly, but covenantally stupid. Why? Because he made a marriage alliance with wicked King Ahab. And because of that, God brought judgment upon the kingdom of Judah in so much so that when Jehoshaphat, this good king, died and his son Jehoram became king, 2 Chronicles 21, 1-7 tells us that this man, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, and the husband of Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, he killed all the rest of his brothers at his coronation so that Jehoram was the one surviving son of Jehoshaphat, and the line of David shrunk. Well, if that wasn't enough, you perhaps don't remember that Jehoram was so wicked that God were, were to bring judgment upon Jehoram in his reign. In 2 Chronicles 21, verses 16 and 17, we're told that God allowed the Philistines and some Arabs to come in and execute judgment on the kingdom. And part of that judgment was that these enemies of Athaliah's husband, Jehoram, would kill all of Jehoram's sons except one. His name, the youngest son, was King Ahaziah, sometimes known as King Jehoahaz. But then if that wasn't enough, after two shrinkings of this Davidic line, 
We also understand in the context here, just do two chapters before, when Jehu of Israel was getting rid of all the Baal worship in the northern kingdom of Israel, in his zeal, he also killed King Ahaziah. And Ahaziah was executed by Jehu. And of course, this was the one surviving son of Jehoram and the one son of Athaliah. And then finally, in the context of this, you recognize perhaps Jehu also in his zeal, he encountered 42 members of the royal family that were on their way to visit Ahab and Jezebel's family. And as they went there, Jehu in his zeal had all of these individuals executed as well. So here by this time, you have just a few left in the Davidic line in the kingdom of Judah. By this point in the text, we understand Ahaziah has been killed, but the author of this particular book has been dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel and the line of Jehu and the destruction of the line of Ahab and Omri. And so now what? Well, this is perhaps how we ask that question how will the promise that David's line would be preserved, how will that happen? You see, there's a daring rescue here of David's line. There's a daring protection here of David's line. And there is a daring coronation of young King Joash. Here were the circumstances. Remember, four times now, historically, leading up to this chapter, we see the destruction of some of the members of the royal line, particularly the seed of David, the sons and grandsons of Jehoshaphat that have been killed. But here's Athaliah in verse 1. Wonderful woman, right? Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal seed. The word seed is very important here because this reminds us these are the ones in the line of David. So here is the usurper, Athaliah. She goes on a rampage and she begins to kill the rest of the royal line. Now you have to remember who Athaliah is, don't you? We think that she's the daughter of Jezebel. Now it's not clear that she was. It could have been another wife of Ahab. But most commentaries believe that she was the daughter of Jezebel. She's also the wife of Jehoram, the king who has died. Her son, Ahaziah, became king. So he's, she is the wife of Jehoram and the mother of Ahaziah. But she is also the only non-Davidic ruler of the kingdom of Judah in its history. In fact, she is truly the only usurper who has succeeded to gain some kind of reign in the line or in the, in the kingdom of Judah. She thinks she has succeeded. Here's what happens. She has tried to destroy all of them. And you know, by this time, you kind of ask the question, well, who's left? If all of her contemporaries, that is, the brothers of her husband, had been killed, and if all of her sons had been killed, who's left? Well, of course, this would indicate her grandsons 
or perhaps some people in distant parts of the family that might have some claim to the throne. Imagine she's going around killing all her grandchildren and perhaps the grandchildren of her husband or the children of her son from other wives. Here it is. She's done all of these things, and yet God has raised up in this time when this Davidic line is threatened more than any time in the history of biblical history. He raises up an individual by the name of Jehoshaphat, this unknown antagonist to Queen Athaliah. Scripture tells us here she is the sister of Ahaziah. Now, this does not mean that Athaliah is her mother. It's likely, perhaps, that another woman was the mother of Jehoshaphat. After all, would Athaliah really permit her daughter to be married to a priest? The Chronicles' account of this particular thing tells us she is the wife of Jehoiada, the priest. And he is a priest of the true God, Yahweh, the Lord. So here is a priest. He's married into the royal family. He's married Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, this daughter of the king that has been killed, now begins a rescue mission. As the destruction is coming upon the grandchildren, the people here of the royal family, it tells us here, she stole away Joash, the son of Ahaziah, from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. In fact, the words here indicate an inner chamber so that some of those who write upon this particular passage seem to indicate this was like a supply room with a lot of beds or mattresses that they could hide under. And so here it is. She rescues this heir from death. But not only that. It says... He remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. This is not just a rescue effort. This is rescue and adoption. Here it is. She has now adopted this child into the family. Notice this child here, by all indication, according to the record, is about one year old. An infant. All that's left standing in the promise that God has made that King David would have someone on the throne forever is a one-year-old baby. This daring rescue is by God's grace. You know how important it is for us to be reminded. This is, of course, the month when we remember the infamous ruling in our court system called Roe v. Wade. It legalized abortion in all 50 states. Fortunately, that particular ruling has been overturned. But for those 50 years, that very long time, it has always been the effort of those who believe in doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord to save the children. And yet, how much more important is it not only to save those children, but to provide for their care? Jehoshaphat is one of those who has saved a child from death. But she didn't stop there. She cared for that child, adopted him into her family, and provided for him 
This noteworthy woman, I bet you don't even remember her name before tonight. I bet you have not read a book that lists her up as one of the, the woman heroes of Scripture. You know those books that come out, all the, all the women of the Bible in history, and we study them. And for good reason, many of these godly women were women to be followed and to follow their example. Many of them were to lift it up as great godly examples for us. But how many of those books list Jehoshaphat? And yet if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat's action... It's possible that the entire line of David and the coming Christ could not have taken place. This worthy woman risked her life not once, but for an extended period of six years. If Queen Athaliah found out, her life would have been forfeit. This was a daring rescue of the Davidic line. But then the attention turns to her husband. Verse 4 says, but in the seventh year... Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come in the house of the Lord and he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord and he showed them the king's son. Now the rescue has taken place. Now it's time for the protection of the Davidic line as the time has come for something to be done. The chronicler tells us that at this point in time Jehoiada the priest took courage. The courage of Jehoiada the priest. Where do you get courage? From prayer, from uplifting of the spirit, from a reliance upon the word of God, from the promises that God makes. He took courage. And then what did he do? He began to recruit those to help him. And of course, the recruiting was very strategic, was it not? He begins with the captains of the Karaites and the guards. We don't really know what this word Karaites means, although some tell us this is like special forces, a special strategic force, military force. And the guards here were actually the hundreds. They were select guards who had uh, control or command over a hundred men, military men. And in fact, those the, the example we have from Second Chronicles tells us that these individuals, once they made a covenant here, Notice what happens, recruitment and covenant with these men. These men now in covenant or promise agreement with Jehoiada went throughout the land of Judah and recruited Levites and recruited heads of the father's houses throughout Israel and they all come back to the temple, to the house of the Lord. And here's what he does. He shows them the king's son been a secret for six years. The people here, some of them probably are losing hope, particularly the remnant who is looking to worship the true God and to be reminded of God's promise to care for his people and to have a king in the line of David. Hope has been small, but now he reveals to them the king has been saved, a child, seven years old. So this courage of Jehoiada the priest is accompanied by his commands. He commands it. Now it's, it's a little fuzzy throughout this passage exactly how this works, but the, the idea here is he recruits all these Levites, all these men, military men, and, and people of the kingdom, and they've come into the house, 
And in fact, 2 Chronicles tells us he makes a second covenant with all of the people now who know that this king has survived. And he has a strategy. He uses the strategic resources of the temple. The palace has been taken over by Queen Athaliah. They cannot rely upon those in the palace, but he, as a priest, has the resources of the temple, and so they choose the choice time. The choice time is the Sabbath, because at the Sabbath, they would be coming and going to serve in the, uh, in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the temple. There would be those who were coming on to duty and those who were coming off of duty, like any kind of workplace. And so he takes that particular time in the, the uh, worship time of the people because that's when the most people are available amongst the Levites and the military. He takes them and they surround the king. He has a strategic opportunity to tell them where to stand, where to guard, where to surround the king and protect him at all cost. And so this plan is devised and carried out. We're told the captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And in fact, they're to protect him even as the king goes out and comes in. The idea here is that he's going to come out of the temple and eventually go into the palace as the king, and they're protecting him all along. So here's Jehoshaphat, by God's grace, for such a time as this, she rescued the king, the Davidic line. Now her husband Jehoiada, as a priest, a religious leader in Judah, now he has the opportunity to present the king to the people and protect that Davidic line. Now you know what in our country the Secret Service is supposed to do. The Secret Service job is to protect the President of the United States at all costs. In fact, the last man standing, if the president is under attack, is supposed to be the president himself, is it not? All of the men in the Secret Service swear an oath to protect that man, whoever it is, in office, even to the point of death. And here it is. Jehoiada entered into this covenant with these men from all backgrounds, of the families of Israel, and particularly here of the select choice group and also the Levites. And he also arms them with a very symbolic arming. On the one hand, it's strategic because they all come to the temple unarmed so that there is no alarm from the palace. On the other hand, we're reminded that he's able to supply them with very important weapons. He gives them the weapons, the spears, the shields that had been King David's that were in the house of the Lord. How symbolic is that? The plan was to protect the king. In fact, in 2 Chronicles, Jehoiada tells the people, let him, the king, reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. And here it is. The line is protected. One child. All that's left of the Davidic line is now protected by the people. Verse 9 reminds us the captains did according to what was commanded. Verse 10 says they were given the shields and so forth. Verse 11 then the guards stand. They carry out everything. They stand around with weapons in their hands surrounding the king. And then verse 12. 
He brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Now, this is daring, too. You have to remember, Queen Athaliah is right there in the palace. She has killed everybody else in the Davidic line, and she's under the assumption up until this point that she has succeeded. She has been reigning in wickedness for six years. But here is the account of the success of the counter-revolution. She had a revolution. She was the usurper. She thought she had ended the Davidic line. She thought the promises, if she even was aware of the promises, were stopped. She could now go worship her god, Baal, without any problem. But the success of the counter-revolution was this. Long live the king. But notice one little thing that takes place. When he brings out the king's son and he anoints him, he also puts on him the crown and, and gives, gives him the, the testimony. What is, what is all this about? This is a statement of faith to the nation. You see, this word for crown is not always the word that's used for the king's crown here in the Old Testament. This word for crown is often used in the context of this anointing as someone who is consecrated. This is a consecrated item to be placed on the head. In fact, sometimes the Levites were given a symbol of consecration to wear on their head. Here it is. This is not the same thing. This is a crown. But the idea here is this is the crown of consecration to the Lord. But the second thing here is the testimony of the kingdom. What is this testimony? This testimony is also the word warning. And assumedly it refers back to God's law. Every single king... According to God's command, way back before kings even were initiated in Israel, they were told in Deuteronomy 17 that they were supposed to do certain things and be certain things or refrain from certain things. They were supposed to not accumulate wealth or horses or wives. They were supposed to be kings that were following God's law. In fact, it says there that they were to write a copy of the law themselves and then they were supposed to consult it every day of their reign. So this testimony could either have been that warning from Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 on a small scroll, or it might have been the entire Torah, the law of God, that he was given to hold when he was anointed and crowned the king. What does this testimony do? Well, this testimony was both for his life. In other words, he was personally supposed to follow God's law and be an example to all the people. And recognize that even as king, he was under the authority of the true king, God himself. But the other part of that testimony was for his rule of the people. It was supposed to be just. It was supposed to be gracious. It was supposed to be on behalf of of the people in the eyes and under the authority of God. 
that testimony was a reminder that he was only king because God had placed him there and because God had made a covenant with the Davidic line and with the people of God, he was bound to keep as person and as ruler the law of God. Now isn't this what so many people in our government are supposed to do? From, from the president way down to much of the bureaucracy, even to some of the local courts of our county here or city, there are those who take an oath of office, right? They might swear on a Bible, but the oath is always something along the lines to preserve and protect the Constitution of the United States. Now, I know that some people take that oath and they don't really mean it. They may not understand it. They may not care about it. But, but their, their job is to protect and preserve the Constitution as the law of the land. To the king of Israel and to the people of God, both then and now, God's word is to be paramount. It's to be paramount to this kingdom and to the church and here to the king as well as to all those who have now been described as kings in the kingdom of God. You and me, the royal family, adopted into the family of God. God's word is to be paramount. This daring coronation in the presence of the wicked Queen Athaliah upon threat of death, so much so that many, many people are surrounding the king with weapons in their hand, Observe that this testimony of God placed upon this young child to be king was a reminder that God's word rules over all. So what do we make of this historic event? Should we honor Jehoshaphat or revere her? Is that the point? Obviously it's not because that has not happened through history and the spirit has not told the church to do this. Should we say be like Jehoshaphat? Well, in one sense, yes, we should be like Jehoshaphat, protect life and be one who honors life and is reminded that life is a gift of God. But, but the scriptures don't tell us to be like people like that necessarily in every aspect of their life. Should we honor Jehoiada and perhaps revere him because he was a godly man? In fact, we'll see that throughout his life, as long as he lived, King jo Joash, this young boy, would be someone who followed the law of God and would honor him. Should we then say, be like Jehoiada? Well, I was always told in seminary, be careful of those be like sermons, because that's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't tell us to be like somebody else. We're to be ourselves. And besides, at the same time, if we were to be like Jehoiada, he had faults too, and he had sins. It's not about being like another person, unless it's Jesus. No. What is the point? Give glory to the Lord God of heaven and earth. Because even when the fulfillment of his promises are most seriously threatened, even when it looks like there's no hope, even when this promise hinged on the life of a one-year-old boy, God will not let his word fall to the ground. He raised up someone to rescue someone from the line. 
he raised up a couple that would adopt that child into their family for six years. He raised up military leaders and religious leaders who would surround this young boy in the time of revelation and they would protect him from the wicked queen. He would protect and preserve his people so that yes, in the future, there would be an incarnation of Jesus Christ, the seed of David. It's protected and it's preserved and it's God's work through his people. Honor and glorify him. And people clapped, saying, Long live the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for protecting this line. Not because David was better than everybody else, but because this was about your word and your promise. This was about the coming Messiah. This was about protecting and preserving not just a line, but your people and the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. And we pray that you will help us to believe it, even when it seems hopeless, even when things seem to have gotten out of control, even when there's chaos and confusion. Lord, remind us of your precious promise and that your word shall not fall to the ground. We pray in Jesus' name.